Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Christopher Bondi about his new book, Voice, Silence, and Self, Negotiations of Buraku Identity in Contemporary Japan. This was published in 2015 with the Harvard University Asia Center. Now, this is a particularly fascinating book, and even if you're not someone who imagines themselves to be interested in Japan in particular, um, you very well might be interested in what's happening in the book. So what Christopher does is he takes us into um, two particular localities, and you'll hear about them in the moments to come, to look at the practices, the processes by which students in particular, and as they grow into adults um, and move into other communities, adults, negotiate practices of silence, silencing, voicing, um, and really self-making around issues of Buraku identity. It's really, really fascinating. And one of the reasons that I am particularly enthusiastic about this book is that it takes this case study to, I think, inform much broader arguments that extend well beyond this particular case study, well beyond Japan, about um, and ways of thinking about the processes and practices of silencing and, and the way that they construct and constrain identities, much more broadly speaking. So it's a really fascinating book. Um, the core argument, um, just to kind of get this out of the way, in the words of the book, is that Buraku issues stem from a struggle with silence. And for Buraku groups and individuals, their their relationship to this identity is essentially the search for a voice for their complex experience. So if you're interested in silencing voice, identity, and all of the many, many, many issues that stem from thinking with those notions and really staying with the trouble that thinking with those notions creates, this is a book for you. So with that, I will leave you to the rest of the interview. Um, But thank you very much for joining us, for listening, and for your support of the channel. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Christopher Bondi about his new book, Voice, Silence, and Self. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Christopher, and thanks so much both for writing a really, really fascinating book um, that I really enjoyed and I'm really excited to talk with you about and also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm really looking forward. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. So, Christopher, um, let's start at the beginning with the question that is our traditional starting point for the channel, and that is, what brought you to the field? How did you come to work on modern Japan? Uh, quite by accident. Um, it started when I was in college. I actually spent two years as an undergrad in Japan. Um, first, simply because I was not happy in school in college and I wanted to drop out. And my mother suggested maybe you should do a study abroad program instead of dropping out. And had the chance to come to Japan where I knew nothing about the language or the society. And thought, sure, Japan, why not? And really enjoyed it and spent another year, went back to, was here for a year, back to the States, back to Japan for a year, back to the States to graduate. And then, um, then did the JET program for two years. And at that point I thought, well, I don't know what else to do. So I'll go to graduate school for Japanese studies. That's sort of what led me into modern Japanese society. So I'll say a little bit, um, just very briefly for listeners, about what the book is about, and then we'll kind of come back to this. And most mm-hmm. of this is in, it's going to be in the words of the book. So the book okay. that we're talking about is a study of, in the words of the book, how young people initially learn about being burakumin in school and in their community, and how over time they negotiate the silence that surrounds the issue in Japan. It looks at the roles of schools and of social relationships of various sorts in, again, in the words of the book, shaping people's identity as Barakumin within a protective cocoon where risk is minimized. 
It, also in the words of the book, examines the ways in which these youth are taught Boraku issues once they enter junior high school, the tools that experience provides, and the ways in which lessons learned are carried along the life cycle as expanding social interactions force them beyond this protective cocoon. Okay, so it's a fascinating study. We're going to talk about um, all of this in the moments to come, the protective cocoon, Borakumin, all of this stuff, the different ways that um, different kinds of schools play into this. But first, Christopher, how did you mm -hmm. come to this project? Um, well, it, it began in part with, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the, my experience working on the JET program. I, I worked in two different public schools, junior high schools in western Japan, and one of the schools had a, uh, about a 20% Budokumin population um, among the students. And at the time, I wasn't there to do research. I was simply there as an assistant language teacher. And, but it just so happened that my, my desk was right next to the uh, liaison between the Budaku community and the school. And so he kept giving me materials uh, on Budaku issues that I simply looked at as a way to learn a little bit more Japanese and learned a little bit about it then. But then it was when I was in graduate school uh, working on my PhD in, in sociology that I read uh, the book Learning to Labor by Paul Willis, uh, which is sort of a giant in educational sociology. And the subtitle of the book is How Working Class Kids Get Working Class Jobs. And as I was reading it, the descriptions he had of the students, I thought, very much matched the experience of the Budaku youth that I had encountered. And so I went to my advisor and I said, I want to do a similar study among Budaku kids and looking at the role of education and their experiences. Has anyone done this? She said, no, I don't think so. And so I said, well, that's, that's my dissertation topic. And that's sort of the, the naive, energetic graduate student that I was, thinking that this would be something I could simply waltz into. And uh, we can perhaps talk about that later, but it was, it was a bit of a challenge, but at the same time, uh, really stimulating to try to, to try to do that project. So how did you move from the dissertation stage to the book manuscript stage? Were there any kind of major or significant, if not major, ways that the project changed from one step to the other? Uh, yes, it, it changed considerably. Um, and I, I thought the, the dissertation was uh, entitled... Um, Gosh, what was it titled? Becoming Budokumin, Education, Identity, and Social Awareness in Two Japanese Communities. And it ended essentially with the children entering high school. And it wasn't until um, I was able to get a grant to do follow-up work a few years later that I began to interview the children. I still call them children in my mind. They're still 15 years old, even though they're probably in their late 20s, early 30s now. Um, but I got a chance to interview them as they moved into adulthood. And as they did that, that time separation from dissertation to, to the theme of the book really changed with those few, those consecutive interviews that I was doing. And that really had to do with the role of silence. Um, that was not a part of the dissertation at all. And it took me time, I think, away from the dissertation to, to really realize as they got older and they weren't in that uh, protective cocoon, that the way in which they interacted with people really did reinforce the silence. And once I sort of came up with that as a framework, and it was, um, as I quote in the book, it's through the work of Eviatar Zerbevel, um, who did a book called The Elephant in the Room. It's about silence in everyday life. Uh, that really made me, it, it sort of clicked. Oh, here's exactly how I want to do this. Here's the way I want to change this this whole project. So, the theoretical approach changed dramatically, um, and it really allowed what I think is a much a much better way of discussing this whole process um, was through that that frame of silence. So the book um, actually kind of opens up in the first chapter with a question that it then returns to by the end. Here's the question. You are a member of a minority group, but do not know it. How is this possible? Okay, so Christopher, can you take this question and perhaps use it to open up for listeners who, who don't know what buraku means, right? Who's not familiar with that term, um, to open this up into kind of a brief explanation of what, is, what does it mean when we say buraku? 
Okay, sure. The the Budokmin are uh, ethnically, racially, culturally, linguistically, religiously, all the markers that we may think of as marking minority and majority groups as different, uh, they are the same as majority Japanese. And so that also, especially coming from a North American perspective, where so much of our sort of social understanding of difference is predicated on visibility, um, <clears throat> though not exclusively, of course, but the, the fact that the Budokmin are invisible and, and this, the most famous uh, book about Budokmin that, that's sort of still the, the granddaddy, if you will, is um, entitled Japan's Invisible Race, um, which is problematic on a host of levels. But uh, the idea that, that this is a minority group whose discrimination, whose marginality is based on a com- sort of a, several different components, partly uh, heredity, ancestry of uh, quasi-outcast groups, as well as uh, areas of residence. Uh, a buraku is, is literally uh, a hamlet. It's something smaller than a village. And mean is people. So that comes out of a, a historical legacy, a historical marker of, of residential segregation. And that tends to be the primary marker, though, not, again, not exclusively. And I know um, listeners have probably listened to your podcast with Joe Hankins about this as well, um, that it's it's also occupational as, as well. And, and so the Budokamine really are uh, invisible in, again, a North American perspective of thinking we see difference with majority-minority groups. And you wouldn't know a Budokamine if they walked up to you unless they came out to tell you that they were Budokamine. And in the Japanese literature, coming out is the, terms, the terminology that's used as well. So it really is a group of people who are rendered invisible by physiology, but also rendered invisible and silenced by uh, social processes where people simply don't talk about Budaku issues in contemporary society. That's right. Thank you so much. And this idea of silence, right, this core theme of silence is something that is um, very much all throughout the book, um, both in terms of the unseen, right, the invisibility that you talked about, and also the unsaid. And you talk um, in this first chapter about various ways, various resonances of silence um, and point us to the importance of the way that silence is experienced and reproduced, as you say here, through individual interaction. So this book is really going to bring us into interaction, everyday interaction among individuals to help us understand the ways that silences here are not just experienced and produced, but also reproduced. Mm-hmm. So the second chapter, um, to, and we're going to kind of come back out into that again, but first, the second chapter offers a background um, for understanding the Burakumin. It takes us from um, sort of Tokugawa, right, all the way up. And I want to ask you in particular um, to kind of open up a moment that you talk about here when you talk about post-war Buraku social movements. Mm-hmm. So after historical background, early social movements, we come to the post-war. Now, this becomes really important in part because this is the period where we're going to see the formation of uh, policies and also a particular group that go on to shape what's going to happen later on. So um, the National Committee for Buraku Liberation, which becomes the Buraku Liberation League, or the BLL, can you talk about the nature of this group um, to kind of bring us into this? What's important to you that we understand about this group, its genesis, in order to understand um, the work that it's going to be doing later on in the study? Okay. Um, the the NCBL, and more, more directly the BLL itself, uh, is a very proactive and very engaged uh, social movement group that takes as, well, several different directions with their, their approaches. But I guess primarily the, the idea that one should be proud of being Budokmin and coupled with that, one should challenge discrimination wherever one sees it or encounters it. And with that, they're also, they also made attempts to not just raise awareness, but to raise uh, living, con- improve living conditions, uh, imp- improve occupational and educational opportunities. And for 
arguably most of the post-war period, um, up until probably 10 or 15 years ago, their power was was very clear as the top uh, Budaku social movement group in terms of numbers and in terms of, of actual power. Um, part of their approach historically has been, um, again, this very direct challenging of discrimination. And through a process known as Qdan, which is uh, translated as denunciation sessions, and others have written about Qdan as well, but they were used in the pre-war period, but really took on tremendous impact in the post-war period where um, the, the design of a Qdan was to get people who had allegedly said or done something uh, discriminatory to be re-educated or learn the, the truth of Budaku discrimination. And these were very, uh, well, to be on the receiving end of one, I can only describe as probably incredibly frightening. Uh, and to to raise awareness was the, the goal. But what ended up happening is because these events, and I, I write about this in more detail, as have, have others, um, because the, the events were very emotionally charged and there were reports of, in some cases, of physical violence, it ended up, in a way, uh, negating open discussions of Budaku issues. And so the attempt by the BLL to raise awareness, both individually and structurally, through QDON has worked at an initial stage, but may have had the, the unintended consequence of, of turning people away from more engagement who may not have been uh, Budaku, uh, but wanted to talk about these issues, but then also were concerned about saying the quote-unquote wrong thing. Now we follow um, this group, right, the BLL, and we follow the ways that it shapes a particular mode of engaging Buraku issues when we move into the next chapter and you move us into one of the two major sites that the book focuses on. So I'll situate us there. Chapter three looks at the role of social movements, both in challenging but also in reproducing silence, and considers how two very different paradigms of silence and voice have manifest in everyday actions at the community level in two different kinds of communities. Um, so one of these communities is a community called Kuramatsu, and the other community is a community I was referencing when I talked about the BLL sort of being influential, and that's Takagawa. Okay, so to situate us here, um, can you talk about these two places, Kuramatsu and Takagawa? Why, um, for, for example, to start us off, why did you choose these two places? And what's important for listeners to understand about the differences between these two places before we then get into how they are negotiating these issues of silencing and voicing and buraku identity very, very differently? Okay. Um, I should point out at the beginning that, that Kuromatsu and Takagawa are both pseudonyms. Um, mm-hmm. That, uh, And the names throughout the book are, are pseudonyms in part. Um, in part, then, there's my, my role in perpetuating silence by not actually uh, using the real names. But that, that's an outcome of not everybody wanting to be outed or to, out, to be out or out themselves. So um, in choosing the communities, uh, as you were asking the question, I had to smile as it was not as much my choosing the communities as the communities choosing me in, in a way. Um, part of doing research on Budaku issues is that it's it's incredibly challenging to simply to find a quote-unquote representative uh, Budaka community. Um, And it really was about, uh, well, something that that we don't often like to talk about in academia, but luck uh, played a role. We talk about that all the time. (laughs) Yeah, we we, we like to pretend that we know what we're doing, but in fact, it's just a lot of times it's dumb luck. Absolutely. but uh, yeah, Kuramatsu was through um, through connections I had made years ago with with school teachers and getting them to let me into the school. And uh, Takagawa was was even more sort of by chance. I I happened to mention when I after I had read uh, Learning to Labor and decided on the topic. I was telling various graduate students um, and office mates and things what I was wanting to do. And one of my office mates, who had nothing to do with Japan and no interest in Japan, said, oh, but Akamine, I I think my girlfriend's that. And it turns out he was uh, dating a Japanese woman who was Budakamine. And 
I met her a few weeks later and she said, yeah, she was. And she had told him, even though he had no knowledge, because she felt it was important to, for him to know who she was. And that was how she thought of herself as, as Budokmin. And to, to make a, a long story short, we had arranged to meet up in, in Japan that summer. And I thought we were just going to have lunch. And she said, oh, I've actually arranged for a meeting with the head of the, uh, the BLL in my, in my community in Osaka. And so I quickly tried to come up with some questions to ask him and told him, oh, I wanted to do this, uh, this kind of project. And he leaves the room for a few minutes, calls back comes back and gives me this phone number and says, call this guy tonight. Um, I just called him. He's expecting your call. And that was uh, Mr. Takagi in, in Takagawa. And I, I called him up and I said, here's what I want to do. And he said, if you want to come down, come on down and see what you see. But uh, um, you, know, you should have done this work 30 years ago. It was much more interesting. And 30 years ago, I was barely doing English, let alone Japanese. So I... Um, I went down and the community, uh, the head of the BLL, the head of the Board of Education said that I could do the work. And that's, that's how I got into that community. So it wasn't as much me choosing the communities as just got lucky and was able to make, make use of past connections to get into these places. Um, and it just so happened that Takagawa, um, not surprisingly, because of the very strong BLL presence there, was interested in having people come in and talk about these issues. Uh, Kuromatsu, at the time, I didn't know it when I got in, but had a, um, another social movement organization there called the Jiudoakai, which um, is, I, I translate as the Liberal Assimilation Association. And it's, they take a much more of a, um, not, not to beat a dead horse, but a, a much more of a silent approach in that talking about Budaku issues perpetuates the problem. Uh, perpetuates discrimination. And if, if people stop talking about Budaku issues, they will gradually go away. And that's really what should be happening. Um, so that, that's how I, I sort of chose the communities, if you will. More, more luck, um, more just connections, things like that. There's this really wonderful appendix at the end of the book that actually tells some of these stories, right? Not just, um, and I want to mark this because it's also really important for the overall story about silence and silencing that the book is telling. And also because just in case we don't get there to, at the end, um, it's not only a really wonderful um, and really fascinating account of what you just described, right? how you came to work in these contexts, but also the ways in which the very different negotiations around silence and voicing also shaped your mode of working, right? What, yes. what it was possible to do in both of these contexts. So um, may, I hope we'll get have time to get back to that toward the end. But if not, listeners, please do read the appendix because it's really fascinating um, in terms of the methodology and, and the process here. And I, I really, really loved that part of the book. Oh, thank you. So these two um, spaces, and we'll just refer to them right by their pseudonyms, um, Kuramatsu and Takagawa, have very, very different approaches, as you mentioned, around um, issues of silencing um, and Baraku identity. So you've talked a little bit about the relatively more um, silencing approach of Kuramatsu. Um, mm -hmm. When you talk in the book, um, in this chapter, chapter three, about Takagawa, you mentioned some examples of the ways in which um, the approach in Takagawa really very much differed from Kuramatsu. And one of the really interesting things that you talk about here is the festival of Buraku liberation that happens in Takagawa. So can you talk a little bit about that as for you, it exemplifies something important about the culture around um, silencing an identity in Takagawa? Yes, uh, the... The, one of the main festivals in Takagawa, and as I write, the only festival that's really geared towards the entire family, is this summer festival um, called the Kaiho no Matsuri, the Festival of Liberation. And it is, on the one hand, it is a typical Japanese summer festival. There are lanterns, there are performances, there are uh, various... Um, stalls selling food and drink and games and things like that. So it looks like a regular festival. It's not until you start to look around, if you look at the lanterns that are hung that say life, love, human rights, and Kaiho as a, as a, um, 
as a term of liberation is, is a very powerful one. And the festival itself really does center uh, Budaku issues in a, in a way that is not, uh, not scary, um, for lack of a better word, as some of the Qudan denunciation sessions could have been. And it, it really does try to bring, bring the experience of the local community to the Budaku experience by having, a, um, by having children be the centerpiece of the of the festival of having junior high school and elementary kids do um, plays and performances that highlight Budaku issues, and it really, to me, serves in a way to, to very much put Budaku issues not as this thing that we don't talk about, that we sort of tiptoe around, but we we embrace it. Right? Um, that there's a lot to be proud of, and look at all the wonderful things that that quote-unquote, our culture has done, um, uh, particularly of the idea of supporting each other, of experiencing discrimination, but knowing that um, what's important is, is eating other people and being kind to other people. Right? These kinds of messages were coming through the festival. And it really, it really sort of centers this idea of, of liberation from oppression, liberation from marginalization, and that one should be proud of of that background, of that experience. Great. Thank you so much. Um, now you, you mentioned children, right, and mm-hmm. the centrality of children, and that really nicely, I think, brings us um, further into the book. So much of the book is about the experiences of children at various stages. And, in fact, as we move into Chapter 4 and we move into the schools, um, we also move into a really, really interesting context that opens up something that I'd like to ask you about. So in um, the research for the book, you mentioned that you not only interviewed children, um, and we'll, we'll get to the particular context in a moment, but you also re-interviewed them to get a sense of change over time. So as we move into the schools now, um, when we move into the book, can you talk a little bit about that aspect of your process and methodology, kind of the, the importance of re-interviewing um, in terms of the work that the project's doing? Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I began the project by... Uh, by looking at the experience of junior high school students, particularly uh, third year junior high school, which is the end of compulsory education in Japan. And I picked third year in part because at 15, I thought they would be the most mature and able to sort of put into, into words that were a little bit more sophisticated what they were going through. And it, it was fine by itself. But then as I, continued to, to write the dissertation. I was fortunate enough to get a grant to go back um, the following year. And then I was able to, I was still in contact with most of the kids. And so I, I started to interview them. And so this is, this is going to be a, an opportunity. If I can keep in contact with, with people um, for years to come, I should be able to continue to interview them. And that also got me thinking about the, the relative lack of work that's been done in terms of uh, longitudinal ethnographic studies. Um, there's, there are some, the um, Jay McLeod's Ain't No Making It is, is a wonderful example of, of following marginalized kids um, into adulthood. And thought I, if I can do something like that, it would really allow, allow the discussion to be much more complex and much what I thought was, would be much richer in terms of not just looking at children at a point in time, but looking at how their experiences at a point in time then change um, or in some cases stay the same uh, with, with thinking about Budaku issues. So I really tried to keep in contact and I haven't, I, mean, I haven't kept in contact with all of them. Um, but what I ended up doing was, if I can keep in contact even with just a few, I get to have contact with others then um, because they keep in contact with each other. And trying to have a, a sense of, of time, of changing perspectives um, was something I was, I was sort of hoping for. And again, I didn't know that going in that I would be talking about silence. But the fact that I did try to keep up with them really allowed for that to happen. And the, the final sort of research where I was able to come back um, when they were in adulthood, when they were at the point of entering jobs, entering marriage, which is where much of the, the, 
the literature suggests that, that the direct face-to-face discrimination that people will face in contemporary society comes at both stages. Uh, I was able to get a, a grant from, um, uh, from the National Endowment for the Humanities in the U.S., and that really helped, uh, helped that happen. And so it was, again, luck. It was just keeping going. And in part, as one of my informants said uh, when I interviewed her uh, a couple of years ago, she, she said, yeah, I was telling my husband that I was coming to meet you, and I couldn't quite figure out how to explain. Are we friends? You weren't my teacher. What are we? And so I, I said, yeah, I think at this point we're sort of friends. I don't know what else to call it because I wasn't their teacher, and I've been keeping in contact. And um, just try to to be there and it's been nice um so it's not not so much oh it's all for my research but these are these are have, many have grown up into just nice people i'd like to hang around with as well so let's actually um let's see that transformation by going into the schools now and we'll go into chapter four now chapter four is going to take us into schools in both of these areas that we've talked about on um, takagawa and kuramatsu but it's going to take us into those schools in the context of something called doa education. So we haven't yet talked about the doa policies um, or that context. So very briefly, what is uh, doa education? What do we need to understand about that in order to then come to the distinct ways that that's going to be manifest in these two different places? Okay. Uh, doa education was part of a larger um, policy that was implemented by the Japanese government uh, between 1969 and 2002 to improve living conditions, work conditions, opportunities, uh, provide low-interest home loans and things like that for officially recognized Doha districts. And it's important to note that not all Budaku districts registered as official Doha districts so that if a district, if a Budaku district did not register, it was not counted as a, as a, um, a Doha district, so it did not receive money from the national government. And part of the Doha policies uh, were components for education, which uh, included an extra teacher uh, for schools that served Budaku districts or served Doha districts, uh, which provided a, a lower student-teacher ratio. It provided um, opportunities for special classes um, to talk about uh, issues of concern to the local community. And I, I write about this elsewhere, that the difference between Takagawa and Kuromatsu in their, their Doha education policies were quite uh, clear in that in Takagawa, the Doha education, as, as I write about, was, was sort of relabeled within the school as Kaiho Kyoiku, or, or liberation education. And in, Takaga, in Kuromatsu, rather, it was not even, the term Doha education was not even used and the school itself actually did not talk about Budaku issues as much as it talked about resident uh, Brazilian Japanese issues. So there's a sizable population there. But they were still both permissible under Doha policies, Doha education, because Doha education didn't specify that it had to be about Budaku issues. And so the education allowed, in the two schools, allowed for very different engagement with uh, Budaku issues. One, in Takagawa, it very much centered it and had special classes throughout the year, very detailed, um, very open discussions of Budaku issues. And in Kuromatsu, uh, nominally a Budaku-centered program was, in fact, uh, not about Budaku issues at all. And Budaku issues really did not come up other than in passing in the curriculum. I mean, the contrast here for the reader is really, really striking, right? On, in, on the one hand, we have in Kuramatsu um, a kind of separation of students as well, right? That just kind of reinforces the sense of hierarchy. Um, there are things about the curriculum that really replicate and reinforce the silence and the silencing. Whereas in um, Takagawa, one of the really interesting things that comes out of the very different interpretation of Doha education, right? This sort of the challenging of silence is that students um, seem really remarkably self-aware about the importance of overcoming discrimination through education. Like there seems like a real ownership of the whole project um, in the students that were studying in Takagawa. I mean, is that, did you find that? Like, uh, yes and no. Um, certainly in Takagawa, the, 
the response of, of education to overcome discrimination was, was everywhere. And in that sense, there were students who were, in, in my interviews with them, there were students who would simply say that. And it was clear that it was this almost set phrase that they had to, to go with. Um, whereas others were, I think, much more aware. Um, the, the educational approach in Takagawa, particularly surrounding uh, social issues, social studies classes and these liberation classes, was an attempt to sort of push back against the standard teacher tells the students, students write down the notes um, kind of education and really try to encourage them to challenge uh, the teachers, to challenge what they've been presented. And so it really did have a special uh, sort of engage, form of engagement. Although the teachers also told me that I, I was in the school for one, for that third year, uh, particular third year class. And many teachers also said that that third year class was very unusual. Um, and so it could have just been, had I been there a year earlier or even a year later, I might've had a very different experience, but that that class itself was also, as the teachers described, a very unusual class, um, both in terms of intellectual curiosity and academic performance. Uh, it was much higher than what they'd been used to. So the, there is just, again, that, that luck of the draw um, when I got in there. But they, they did, the school and the community did place so much discussion on Badaku issues that I think the students really did have an engagement that was um, perhaps a bit unusual. And certainly in comparison to, to uh, Kuramatsu, it was just night and day difference. Now, in the context of this discussion um, of these uh, very uh, different contexts here um, in this chapter, you talk about a notion of a protective cocoon. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is something that's going to keep coming up for the remaining chapters um, of the book and is very central to the unfolding of the story as we follow these children as they become um, older and as you and adults and enter into adulthood. So can you talk a little bit about this notion? For you, what's important for us to understand about the protective cocoon and that notion as you're using it here? Okay. The idea itself came from... Um, Anthony Giddens' work on uh, modernity and self-identity, and it at first when I when I came across the idea, I thought this is really kind of an interesting way to think about the the sort of the, the way in which junior high school students don't really interact with people who are very different from them um, because junior high school attendance is still localized. Uh, Typically, for public junior high schools, you go to the school that's closest to your home. And so you have an interaction with outsiders that's kept to a minimum. And at first, I was thinking of it more of a structured space of, of the junior high school, of their own community. But then as, as I followed them into adulthood, this idea that they could, uh, they could carry that protective cocoon as not as much a structured physical or social space, but also through a process of, of that we all do of bracketing of sharing parts of our background and with, with some and not sharing with others that in a way that also serves as a symbolic protective cocoon. It protects us from having to engage with different parts of our identities that don't matter in certain situations or that we don't want to get into deeper discussions at certain times, or we don't want to talk about at all. And so the protective cocoon, this idea of having a sort of a social and psychological, uh, though I don't, I'm certainly no psychologist, um, but having that sort of space where risk is pushed aside as much as possible um, through very, very clear actions, um, as, especially as, as the youth get older, through very clear actions that they have chosen to do. Right? They, the, this protective cocoon was because of active decisions. It wasn't something that was forced upon them. Um, unlike in junior high school, where it's much more of a forced interaction um, because of, of that structured uh, engagement. And in fact, in the fifth chapter, you actually take us into um, the cocoon, and you take us into um, practices and practicing, as you call it, mm-hmm. in this space and in this cocoon. And again, it's very different in these two different contexts. Um, so in Kuramatsu, you take us into... Um, spaces that Kuramatsu provided for Buraku students to gather in an after-school study session. And you take us into these, like, blue-sky study sessions. Um, this, 
you mentioned here that this only further marked them as different from their classmates. So can, can you talk a little bit about these blue sky study sessions? What's important about that for you? Sure. These were um, also part of the DOA education policies that there would be extracurricular work uh, or opportunities. And in Kuromatsu, these were conducted once a week right after school. And most junior high school students in, in Japan participate in club activities of one form or another, whether it be sports or arts or music. And by having a student be removed from that, um, from their club, once a week when everybody knows the, the Blue Sky Study Session was happening, kind of served as a, as a marker of, oh, there's something different about them. Now, in talking with, with the teachers and with the graduates of, of that school, one of the things was that it wasn't clearly dictated that this was for students from the Budaku district. Um, but the students themselves seemed to have an awareness that there was something about that. In part, right, junior high school kids are junior high school kids. They, they notice things and they talk about things. And one of the, when they talked about who goes, they notice who's going and they can make a connection with, oh, where, where are these people all from that particular area or that went to that elementary school? So they may not have had the knowledge directly that, oh, it was for the students from the Budaka district when nominally it was for anybody. But they did have a sense that there was some kind of marker of difference between those who could go and those who couldn't or who did not go. And so many students who could have been perhaps better served by having these extra study sessions after school uh, neglected to participate, perhaps for that reason. I, I don't know, because I wasn't able to talk uh, directly uh, with, with some of those graduates as well, because those classes had ended um, with the DOA policies ending. Mm -hmm. um, so it really acted to, it was, on paper, it was a nice idea, but the implementation suggested that it wasn't either thought out or it was done in a way that would have had the, the negative consequence of reinforcing this, this marker of difference. So in contrast, what was happening in Takagawa and, and what were the components of what was happening there that made it, um, at least from my perspective as a reader, work um, a little bit better as a space? Uh, Takagawa, um, those classes were done in the evening at the community center. And so it wasn't it wasn't immediately after school, so students could still participate in their club activities. And again, because the because of the the centrality of Budaku issues in the community itself and in the school, there was not a stigma about attending. And so, when end of the day announcements were made, there would be announcements saying that uh, oh, the the children's club is going to meet tonight at seven o'clock at the. Uh, as a community center, please come along. And there really did not seem to be a stigma about attendance. And it was partially, particularly as we got closer to exam times, it would be study sessions. Teachers would come in, they would work with the students on other problems and different subjects that they were having. But the rest of the time, it was really about learning about difference. There was a lot of discussion of resident Korean experiences, um, of Budaku issues, but talking about Japanese society from a much more, uh, much deeper and much more minority-centric uh, approach. And it also made use and made connections to the junior high school curriculum as well. So it was, these were teachers from school coming in and they connected with what the students had been learning in school with Budaku issues in the discussions in the, in the children's club. And so there, the participation really was a mixture of both Budaku and non-Budaku students. And at the time, during the research, I didn't know who was, I knew some students were from the district, but I didn't know exactly who was Budaku and who was not. And it wasn't until the end that I learned. And um, quite a few of the students who were not, um, uh, not from um, the district were actually participating in the, the children's club in, in Takuyawa. So it really was open to all. And, that, that made it much less, again, much less of a stigma of participation and much more open for everyone. Now, as we move from um, practicing in the cocoon to practicing um, beyond the cocoon, we move into this uh, sixth chapter, we move to the next chapter. 
this chapter follows these youths as they leave their home communities, they leave this cocoon, and they move into high school and then adulthood. Here, they begin, in the words of the book, to bracket their identities and to reconsider how they present themselves to others. And we talked a little bit about this already um, toward the beginning of our conversation. Now, one of the really interesting things that's happening here that you point out is that despite the very different approaches in these two places that we've talked about, and we've just talked about, um, you know, kind of a few elements to give listeners a sense of the difference, but there's lots more examples in the book of these very different cultures of um, dealing with silence and Baraku identity in these two places. So despite these different approaches, though, the outcome of how the youths present themselves, again, in the words of the book, is remarkably similar. So can you talk about that? How do, does and like why does this um, set of seeming um, kind of incompatibilities ultimately resolve themselves into the, uh, the similarities as we follow these students into adulthood? Okay. The... The children from Kuromatsu had been socialized very clearly not to talk about Badaku issues. It didn't come up in the curriculum. It was not discussed openly in the community. Um, there, there were simply no signs that they had a direct form of engagement with this. And so as they moved to high school, where you have to take an entrance exam to get to high school, you start interacting with, with people who are very different in their backgrounds and experiences, um, they hadn't been talking, had not been talking about Badaku issues and simply continued that, right? So their, their presentation of self as Badakamine uh, didn't really change. It was just a non-issue. It was not talked about at all. And so for them, they just maintained that silence. And in Takagawa, one of the, the lessons that the children had learned uh, in junior high school was that you, you will face discrimination, and the teachers consistently referenced the will, not if. And as the children went on to high school, then the, the you will face discrimination is true in large part if someone knows your background. But if nobody knows your background, it's much easier not to potentially face discrimination. And as such, many of the children, especially as they were only one of a handful uh, of students from Takagawa because Takagawa uh, Junior High School was so small. As they became one of only a handful of students in their high school, it became much easier to not share that background. And I, I suspect this is a universal in that high school students don't really want to mark themselves as that different from others. Um, there, there may be, there, there are, not to say they're all the same, but there are, are certainly social groups within high school, as we all know. But to mark yourself at the beginning of high school as being that dramatically different from everyone else, to say you're Budokamine, is something that most, most kids would not want to do. And they want to fit in. And fitting in, in that sense, also means not marking yourself as different. And so, yes, you, you will face discrimination, as the teachers had told them, if you tell people you're Budokamine. But if you don't tell them, and if they don't know, you may avoid that. Right? You may avoid being marked as, as Budokamine, and you may avoid that discrimination. And so what they did is, as, as you mentioned, this, this process of bracketing, which is where you share uh, certain parts of your social self with certain audiences and not with others. And that's what ended up happening, is these students ended up not sharing their Budaku background. Um, it, was part, it was still part of who they were, but it didn't, for them at the time, it did not fit with that social setting and the, therefore did not become part of that, that presented self. And doing that then had the, the counter effect of not talking about Budaku issues and, again, expanding a sense of silence around Budaku concerns. So both, both youth from Kuramatsu and Takagawa, for di very different reasons, ended up keeping their Budaku background silenced. What are the consequences of that, do you think? I mean, we're sort of jumping ahead a little bit, because, but you do talk about yeah. what the future is. That's a really good question. I, I For the longest time, I felt that the... It, and I have had students ask me these kinds of questions as well, that which, which is better, which approach is better kind of thing. And in general, I feel that silence is not an effective mechanism for dealing with social problems. Um I think social problems should be openly engaged with. And for the longest time, I, I felt like 
yeah, this is what Ta what Takao's approach should be, the right approach. That's what people should be doing. But then, again, the, the, the good fortune of being able to continue to interview um, these youth as they, they get older is that they are able to articulate more experiences and, and with more nuance. And as one of the informants noted, this idea that the educational approach they had in Takagawa, which said, you will be discriminated against, fight discrimination, conversely actually made, in this particular informant's case, made her feel like she was discriminated against and made her... Uh, made it very difficult for her to get close to people. She she had a real hard time um, making friends and felt like that whenever people would say something even somewhat negative, uh, negatively towards her, she would interpret that as being sort of a, a uh, an attack on her because she's Badakmi. And she's described it as taking her years to realize that it wasn't because she was Badakmi. They didn't know she was Badakmi. It was just that there are jerks out there. And so that made me think that perhaps this approach to, to, uh, that, that is taken in Takagawa may have some negative consequences as well. That said, Kuramatsu kids weren't prepared for this. And so as they reach marriage age, adulthood, uh, what, what and how will they respond with once they find out their, their Burakamine? And is that, is it better to be shocked and have no knowledge or is it better to be to have some knowledge even though that may bring with it other challenges i don't have an answer um i hesitate to say what one is better than another but yes. but they both carry um you know potential negative consequences and it's it's really it's compelling as a researcher but at the same time it's also um it's very difficult as a as a person to sort of watch this process unfold. That's right. I mean, I was just thinking, I mean, just as a human being, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, these are big questions. These are powerful, powerful questions. And um, I think this is one of the many, for me, reasons why this book is so important and is so interesting, because even though it's focused on this very specific and very particular case study, it's giving us tools to think about and to think with um, these kind of analogous phenomena, if we can call them that, on a much, much broader um, uh, scheme, you know, in a much, much broader way. And I think these are issues that I would imagine touch every single person on some level, right? These are big, big questions. And so I just want to thank you for that. Um, because oh, I think thank the you. Book, no, I mean, really, the book really gives us a way to articulate and think about questions of silencing and identity. Um, and I think these are really important and really crucial questions, and they extend to many, many different contexts. Oh, good. Thank you. Oh, of course. Thank you. But so it's not just, though, about just to come back to um, pages, it's not just about um, the transformations and the development of these youth um, that you, uh, it, the story that you offer us, right? It's also about the transformation and the development of these um, areas uh, themselves. And so you talk not just about the ways the youth change, but also the ways that um, Kuramatsu and Takagawa themselves change by the end of the story, specifically around um, and as a result of the termination of Doha laws. Right? Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that? Um, the, the, what happens in these two places is very, very different. Right. Um, Kuramatsu, as soon as the Doha laws ended in 2002, in, at the end of March 2002, uh, they dismantled ev everything that they possibly could that would have referenced that. And there was already very limited referencing to begin with. And so their their approach was just, okay, it's done with, and now we, we can continue on and not talk about these issues. In Takagawa, when the, the, the law ended, there was very much an attempt to maintain um, an extra teacher in the school and to continue these special classes that the school had had, these, these liberation classes. And so they were trying to find um, money elsewhere that they could uh, use within the school. And for a brief period, they were able to. And then uh, sort of the quasi-punchline um, of this is that Takagawa, in particular, is gone as a city, as a town. Um, it no longer exists, and not not in the 
wiped off the map, but symbolically, I guess in a way, it was wiped off the map. It's still there as a physical location, but it was it joined with several other towns to create a new city. And that was part of a, a national uh, program or national policy to try to encourage uh, cities and towns to, to join together as a way of, uh, well, cost-cutting, for lack of a better word, um, based upon national approaches. And and so what ended up happening is we had schools that were, or the community itself, that had taken a very central approach to Buraku issues with the, the Festival of Liberation, the policies in the school, now having to engage with these in a much broader way that the, the larger city may not have wanted to. And so after after the Doha law ended and within a few years after this um, conglomeration uh, policies went into effect, the um, the community center signs that, that reference Budaku issues were removed. Uh, this liberation classes were removed. The children's club, while it nominally still continues, is is virtually gone. The the festival no longer is held in the summer. It's no longer held on this very public riverbank park. It is now an afternoon or a one-day event in the community center um, that moves around from year to year in terms of when it's held. So there's no sense of of uh, continuity to to this. So Buraku issues really have been uh, rendered uh, silent. <laughs> As, as these changes have happened, these changes that really had nothing to do with Badaku issues per se, but they did end up uh, bringing in, uh, bringing in the, the sort of the broader social approach to Badaku issues into Takagawa, which then rendered those Badaku issues silent in, in the town or in the district. So as we, um, Christopher, come to the conclusion of our conversation, we also come to the conclusion of um, now, there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening here. Um, you talk, uh, for example, about different factors in continued um, and continuing silence around these issues in Japan. Um, you talk about the importance of a kind of larger discussion um, in the public sphere. Um, you talk about the so-called invisibility of Nakamine in Japan. Um, but you also gesture toward the future. Um, and this is something that came up a little bit before, so I'd like to maybe... Um, bring us toward our conclusion by bringing us into the future. Um, for you, what does the future hold? What is the what is the future as we move forward um, and think about the ways that these issues and issues around silencing and identity in the Burakumin um, might be playing out in the years to come in Japan? Mm, that's a very good question. I, I I'm I'm almost at a loss as to how to, to respond even. Japan like everywhere is constantly changing. And I think the, particularly in Japan, there's been a, a very vocal uh, response to the, the rightward shift of, of the national government. And certainly the, the anti, uh, particularly resident Korean uh, protests that have happened, there've been anti hate speech protests um, that, dwarf the the anti-resident Korean hate, uh, hate speech events and tens of thousands of people turning out for anti-nuclear protests, anti-constitutional uh, revision protests, particularly surrounding uh, a, a revised military in Japan. So I think that there's, there's fertile ground for these issues, for people to challenge society and change sort of how social issues are engaged with. That said... Um, the sense that I have, and I, I allude briefly to this um, in, in this conclusion, that there are groups who are engaging with Budaku issues, but they tend to be much smaller. Um, the BLL, at least among young activists that I've spoken with, is looked at as being very much an old organization. And it doesn't really represent the reality of their experiences and the younger people's experiences. And so there are young activists, but many, many others that I've spoken with seem to have the sense of, well, yeah, I'm, I'm Badakamine, but that's, that's just it. There's no, no real mean, meaning to that um, in, the, in the sense of I'm going to be out there joining the movement kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, and this is 
after the book, but there were two documentaries that came out in uh, 2013, I believe, maybe 2014, uh, dealing with Budaku issues. And both made top 10 lists. One, in fact, uh, won an award from the, the Ministry of Cultural Affairs. And uh, both deal with Budaku issues, but they're not... Um, they're not Buraku films. And I, as I've, I've written about this as sort of, I, they're not Buraku films with a capital B, but with a lowercase b, in that they are films. One is um, called Arusei Nikuten no Hanashi, which is the story of a butcher. And in the film, there's about 10 minutes that talks directly about Buraku issues, but the rest really is about a family. It's about globalization. It's about a whole host of, of other issues. Um, so Buraku issues are there, but also it's not, not so much that it's, it's this is a Buraku movie kind of thing. So it really has this sense of there are ways in which it's coming into the, the public sphere, not in a direct confrontational way that, that has been sort of the historical approach, but perhaps in a way that, that, for lack of a better word, normalizes Buraku experiences for a mass public. And I, I think there may be perhaps that kind of move, that, that people are engaging with it, not so much as Buraku for Buraku's sake, but more of what can we do about inequality in Japan? Um, what can we do about um, these other social problems, which Buraku mean are, and Buraku experiences are part of? But um, So I, I think there, there's a hopeful future for addressing Buraku issues, but it's not Buraku issues directly, but in dealing with broader issues of of inequality, of poverty, of things like that, that Buraku issues and Buraku social movement groups have been engaged with, but it doesn't necessarily place Buraku, if you will, at the center. So, Christopher, there's a million billion things that we can talk about that we didn't have a chance to get to um, in the course of our conversation. The book is super rich, and I encourage listeners to go and get a copy and read it because there's a whole lot there that we just barely touched on. But given that, um, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, well, I, I, yeah, I, I hope people get something out of the book. I'm... I'm when, when you write something, you're never quite sure how people will respond. You have an idea of where you want it to go, but it's, it's, um, I hope that people don't see this just as a, uh, a case of this small group in Japan and so what kind of thing that I've, I've tried to address the fact that these are bigger issues. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to the readers to decide if that was, if I was successful or not with that. But, um, yeah, I think, I think trying to think about how we act on, on social issues, how we use silence. Um, and the, th that's, I guess what I would like people to come away with. Um, the, the kids, the communities were great in letting me in. Um, and I really, I really do appreciate all of that. Um, and, um, I, I hope, I hope people get something out of it. I hope people like it. I guess that's, that's the, the, the little end that I want to leave with is I hope people like it. Um, not, not the, not, not the Sally Field, they really like me kind of uh, thing. From, maybe I'm dating myself with that, that, that reference. But, um, but just the sense of, of that they get something out of it and that, um, that people find it interesting and engaging. And, yeah, I tried. I tried. <laughs> so now that the book is out, what's next for you? What's currently inspiring you? Uh, a couple of things. I'm, I'm um, and in a way, out of, out of doing the book. Um, because much of my interest is education and the role of education in, in, in as a form of socialization and experience that we all experience in one form or another. A um, couple of different projects that I've been sort of engaged in. One is looking at alternative education, um, schools that in, in Japan that don't follow mainstream approaches that um, may not have entrance exams, may not have sort of this rote memorization approach, which in a way is not too far from what I saw in Takagawa um, and looking at the experience of graduates, how they reflect on that and then the decisions parents make to send their kids to these schools. And then the other project that I'm trying to start right now is looking at, um, again, out of, out of this, this book is looking at how 
minorities are represented in uh, textbooks and then interviewing teachers who serve those minority populations to see how they grapple with that tension between what is presented as official knowledge versus the reality of those students that they, they teach and how they how the teachers themselves have to approach that and starting that in Japan but I'd like to do it as a comparative study with the US and the UK as well so that's that's and again that also comes out with how Buraku issues are presented or not presented in textbooks in Japan versus how the teachers in Takayawa engage with these issues. Great. Well, best of luck with those projects, and thanks for taking time out of that work to talk with me today. It was really great. Thanks for your support. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.